Hear the words of Jesus, who says, Flourishing are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the first words that Jesus spoke to a crowd of people who had gathered around him in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the three chapters that record Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, we got to ask the question, why have these crowds gathered there in the first place? Like, why is this crowd gathered to give Jesus the opportunity to preach the Sermon on the Mount? Well, they've gathered because of Jesus. He's been declaring the good news that with his arrival on the earth, so has the kingdom of heaven been breaking in all around him and through him. Jesus was doing the kinds of things that the prophets had spoken about in relation to the promised coming of the kingdom. He was healing and setting people free from spiritual and social prisons. He was declaring the good news of God's reign in the world, which is what the kingdom of heaven is, what the kingdom of God is, God's reign in the world. And who is, who is his audience then for this Sermon on the Mount? Who is he preaching to? He's preaching to people who knew that they needed Jesus, those who were curious about following Jesus. That's why we, they were there, for him. When I prepare sermons for Letters Streets Covenant Church, I have this congregation in mind. And you at home who are listening, who are part of this congregation. I have you in mind. I'm making an assumption that you are either part of this church or you're a visitor here who's curious about Jesus. Like, who is Jesus and what does he have to say? And what does this church say about what Jesus has to say? My ideal audience then, when I'm preparing a sermon for Sunday at Letter Streets Covenant Church, are people who are curious about Jesus at a minimum or actively trying to follow Jesus, okay? That's, that's the ideal audience. When I meet people out in town or in my neighborhood, I don't randomly start with, hey, do you want to hear about Jesus' ethics and his vision for human flourishing? Like, that's not my go-to. Like, I, as a neighborhood pastor, as just a, a guy that lives on the corner of H and Kearney Street, I just interact with people. I do a lot more listening to people in the neighborhood than I do when I'm, is this a pulpit? I guess it's a music stand, but when I'm in the preaching role, when I'm in the preaching role, I do a lot of talking. When I'm in the pastor role, which is most of my life, I do a lot of listening. In the same way, it's important to remember that Jesus is not preaching to a random crowd of people. He's preaching to people who are seeking him, who want to hear what he has to say. And you'll notice that when Jesus is meeting new people, he often lets them lead with their questions or lead with their needs. He listens to them, and then he shares the good news when he's invited. I, I'm leading all this up because I, as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount today, we are encountering Jesus' vision for human flourishing for those who are seeking him. Okay, it's for those who are seeking him. And I wanted to remind us about Jesus' audience because we're getting into some nitty-gritty topics now in the Sermon on the Mount. And these texts deal with topics that sometimes make us feel uncomfortable. They address um, some of the root issues that cause flourishing in human life or cause destruction in human life. And I want to be clear that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not 
aimed at people who have no interest in him. He's assuming that we all want to know a little bit about what it means to follow him. Okay. Now, as a church, by the way, I just think we would do really well to remember that difference between seekers and people who, who don't care at this point in their lives. Um, the ethics of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount are not the starting point to just cold call conversations with people, and they're not the litmus test for how the rest of the world ought to live. Why on earth should we hold the world accountable to following Jesus when they're not claiming to follow Jesus? Now, in the past couple weeks, we've encountered the lighthearted topics of anger, <laughs> lust, and so why stop now? Um, Jesus, we're just following Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today, the topic is just so lighthearted, it's divorce and remarriage. And these are challenging, challenging words. And I know that this, in particular, is a deeply sensitive subject. I mean, there are folks in our congregation who have been divorced and remarriage, and they're going to wonder how to interpret Jesus' words, and what does Chris think about all this, and what does this church think about Jesus' words on divorce and remarriage? Some of us have grown up maybe in homes of divorce and or remarriage, um, and all of us know someone who has gone through this, and some of us might be struggling in our marriage relationships right now. Here's my commitment to us as a congregation. I am going to do my best to help us to hear Jesus in his setting in the Sermon on the Mount, in his very words, and I want to do so sensitively and accurately and try and figure out what it all means for us today. Is that, is that a deal? That's what I'm going to try and do. And I think the best place to start, of course, is with Jesus' words. And here they are. It's just two verses where he talks about this in his Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, and it's 31 and 32. And Jesus is continuing on in his sermon, and he says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, we'll unpack that later, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Full stop. The next sentence, he's on to a new subject. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who marries a divorced woman, or whoever sends his, way, his wife away, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Lord, help us, help us to understand what it is that you're saying. Help us to have open hearts and minds to what it is you're saying. And help us to have the wisdom to know how and apply it in our lives. We need your help. You've heard that it was said. In typical fashion, Jesus starts with the law as it was written, as it was said in the Hebrew Scriptures. He's showing us that he's not there to abolish the law, that he is in line with what was said before, because it's the law of God, after all, and he's God, so he's, he's in line with it. He's saying, you've heard that it was said, and then... 
There's, these, there's this, but I say to you section. And I'll remind us again that Jesus is clear in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill it. So marriage and divorce are two gigantic topics, right? Like this is, they're so nuanced and nitty-gritty and situation by situation and culture by culture. It's extremely nuanced. And how is it then that Jesus gives us two verses in the Sermon on the Mount on this extremely complex topic? Part of the answer is just clearly Jesus is not trying to give a talk on marriage and divorce and family. He's not trying to give us an exhaustive case study on what all of this means. Um, He's probably trying to address a specific issue, and it's a specific issue in his day and in our day too, and it's called the any cause divorce, like a divorce for any reason. We're going to get to that shortly. But the second reason that Jesus is so terse, why he just gives us two verses on this complicated issue, is that to a large degree, he assumes his Jewish first century audience already knows what's expected of of marriage uh, according to the Bible. He he expects that they already know what marriage looks like in their setting and culture. We unfortunately do not because we are very far removed culturally and obviously language and time. We're thousands of years later almost, you know, almost 2,000 years after this. So, what I want to do is just take a step back for a little bit and, and, and do a very brief overview on what marriage looked like in Jesus' day and age. What were the expectations? And, and to do that, we need to go back to the very beginning to creation, to, to Genesis. In Genesis 1, we learn that God created humans, men, and women, and he made them in his image. Every human being, you should hear me say this almost every week, every human being is an image bearer of the living God. You've never met a human being that doesn't bear the image of God. You've never met a human being that is not worthy of some dignity and respect. Okay? And in Genesis 2:18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the human, literally, the earth man, to be alone. So I will make a strong partner suitable for him. And so the man and the woman from the very beginning, before the fall and all of that stuff, they're created to be partners in their job as image bearers who reflect the wisdom and creativity and beauty and power of God back into the world, back into creation. Now, through rebellion and sin, a wedge came between human beings and God and each other. And and as years went on and cultures developed, the ancient Near East, where these beginnings are set, they became predominantly patriarchal. That's not the design from the beginning. That's how this evolved. That they became predominantly patriarchal, which means that men were in control of families and governments and economics. And it was a hard environment to be a woman in because they had very little power or control over their own lives. Marriages were arranged and settled at a very early age. And all over the ancient Near East, including in Judaism, we have these documents that tell us a lot about what was expected in ancient marriages. I know that today we're really big on marrying for love. I think that's fantastic, and we're a good fit and partnership and all this kind of stuff. But in the ancient Near East, like, marriages were 
were contractual. There was a marriage agreement or contract, and this is what it would look like. A, uh, a, a husband and a wife would be betrothed together, and there would be a bride price. And so the husband's family, his clan, would put up earnest money and give it to the bride's family and say, this is, this is the bride price. In case our family defaults on this arrangement, uh, you can keep that nest egg, that money. Okay? And, and the bride's family would give the bride, they'd send her away with a dowry. And that dowry was supposed to be a nest egg that uh, should be, she be abandoned for some reason, or her husband die, or, she's, or, or he breaks that covenant of marriage, that contract, then she would have something to live on. So there's already, in the beginning of the marriage, there's a contract, and there's some form of payment or earnest money, if you want to think about it that way. And there were consequences for dissolving marriage. You would lose that investment. Your family would lose that investment if you defaulted on your marriage contract. Well, how can you default on a marriage contract? Like, what were the stipulations? Well, Exodus 21 gives us an overview of what this would look like. Material, intimacy, or emotional neglect were, were grounds for divorce, according to the scriptures. So material neglect, you, you don't take care of your, of your spouse. Typically, this would be from men to women, because in that culture and time, men were the ones who could actually earn the money. Um, you, you, if you cannot care for your spouse, that was grounds for divorce. Uh, abusive situations, um, neglect, abandonment, those were grounds for biblical divorce. Exodus 21 talks about, talks about these things. And we learn from the scriptures that these grounds for divorce were concessions made by God because of what, what the scriptures call hardness of heart. An inability to reconcile with each other, to be compassionate towards one another, to, um, to love well. Hardness of heart is an inability to give ourselves to another person fully. It's not God's ideal that people have divorces, but to protect both parties involved, God made a concession, Exodus 21, to give some ground rules. Here are the things that would break a marriage contract, and he does that concession because of hardness of human heart. By the way, that's why most of the laws are there, to give us boundaries and guidelines as concessions. Like in a perfect world, we wouldn't need to be told, do not murder do not covet, do not worship idols, right? We wouldn't, like, we would just be thriving and have a great relationship with God and people. So it's not out of the question that, that this sort of thing exists. Now, in a patriarchal society, it made it practically impossible for a woman to leave her husband. I mean, husbands could get divorced, but if a woman tried to do it, where would she go? If it wasn't legal, she would be looked on as damaged goods. A lot of men wouldn't want to marry her, or if they did, they were the kind of man who would hold it over her head. And so a lot of women were stuck in horrible relationships. And so God gave Moses the command of the certificate of divorce. Israel, by the way, was the only nation of its day in the ancient Near Eastern world to have such a thing, and it was a grace to women because, of course, a, a couple could get divorced, but being remarried was the difficult part. 
And if you're a woman, how would you care for yourself once your dowry ran out, assuming your husband didn't already spend that dowry? Well, you couldn't. But with a certificate of divorce, it literally says, Jane here is, can legally remarry by the law. And it was a grace of God that, that allowed a woman to, to have a new relationship, um, not only for love, but for care and security. Now, by the time we get to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount in the first century AD, the marriage situation was a lot worse. There were two major schools of thought by two predominant rabbis of the day. And on the one hand was the rabbi Shammai, who taught that divorce was legal only if there was neglect or abuse or adultery. Shammai was a, was a rabbi who taught the Exodus 21 exception clauses. He was a biblical conservative. Okay, so he was following the prescribed uh, out clauses that God gave because of hardness of heart. Okay, so he would allow for divorces in situations where there was material neglect, physical neglect or abuse, or emotional abandonment, neglect, or abuse. Okay? Uh, the, his rival, Hillel, on the other hand, taught that a man, a man could divorce his wife, not the other way around. A man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. And maybe you've heard these stories from other preachers, but we actually have quite a lot of what's called extra-biblical evidence, these other writings and their law code and things like that. And Hillel would say, like, you could leave your wife if she burnt the food, if she looks too old, if you find someone else who suits you better. I mean, it's literally any cause. And that's what it was called, an any-cause divorce. Now, let me just ask you this ridiculous question just to solidify all of this. In a society where men pretty much ruled and where women couldn't vote, which view do you think was the most popular? Yeah, the any-cause divorce. The any-cause divorce was by far the most popular because it gave all the chips to men who could make this decision and women just had to live with it. Now remember God's original ethic of loving each other, of loving neighbor as self? Well, the, the any-cause divorce was a horrible abomination to that ethic you're basically destroying another person's life because you feel like it. Enter Jesus and some good news and enter the challenge of a transformed life. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount logic, sorry, I'm moving around. <laughs> um, remember in the Sermon on the Mount logic what comes right before this teaching. He talks about adultery being so dangerous that it would be better for us if we plucked our eyes out or cut our hands off than go into hell because we're an adulterer, right? So, so adultery is really bad. And then he talks about, like, if you to divorce your wife for any reason— you're making her commit adultery. If you marry a divorced woman, you're committing adultery. So that, that's the hyperbole. That's the extreme that Jesus is putting out there. This is challenging, challenging stuff. We're going to need help interpreting this passage because it's only two verses. Uh, and so what we're going to do is to look at what Jesus says in some other passages. And what I like to do, always, this is a good rule of thumb, interpret Scripture with Scripture. 
And in particular, if you can interpret scripture with other scripture from the same book, that's almost like a double yeah. So in Matthew, we've got this teaching on divorce and remarriage in the Sermon on the Mount, two verses, but there's a longer teaching in Matthew 19. And in that passage, Jesus is responding to a specific question from some religious leaders who ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? They literally say it. They're trying to pin Jesus down on the Hillel or Shammai debate. They want to know where he sits in that spectrum. And the question is not whether or not divorce is legal in God's eyes. Of course it's legal according to the law. Jesus taught the Bible like everybody else. Exodus 21 says it's legal for these, these various reasons. The question is, is it legal for any reason? Is it legal if I just fell out of love? Is it legal my spouse annoys me? Is it legal if I found someone who fulfills me better? Is it legal if this was just my trial marriage, which is actually in the Webster Dictionary now in the latest edition. Trial marriage is a thing in the United States. The question to Jesus of is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason is clearly and unequivocally no. Here Jesus says that a divorce is not valid except for the reason of unchastity, which I know that's I should have picked a different translation, like that sounds very Victorian. But what that word, unchastity, is translating is a Greek word, of course. Porneo, porneo. And porneo is a term that has to do with general infidelity. Not just the act of adultery, but the more general form of infidelity, like including those, those stipulations from Exodus 21, material, emotional neglect, abuse, and negligence. Keep in mind that Jesus is most likely not simply referring to the right to divorce. The, the real sticking point here is the right to remarriage. Like, divorcing is kind of the easy part. It's the re, is it okay to remarry after divorce? That's what the real crux to the issue is. Uh, that's the assumption uh, for a first century woman, is that she would have to remarry in order to find a way to live, Right? And now we're at the heart of the message. The Pharisees, and if we're honest, most of us, sort of like to know where the boundaries are so that then we can sort of live right up into that boundary. Right? We like to know what we can get away with. Like when Samara goes out for a rollerblade in the neighborhood, she likes to know. She tells me, here are the boundaries. I can go, I can't go past Cornwall. I can't go past Broadway, I can't go past F Street, and I can't go past Gerard. Actually, I found out that Gerard's further than Corey Litzer goes, so there's a little discrepancy there. Um, you know, she likes to know where the boundaries are, so she can go right up to them, and sometimes I find out, well, I didn't cross over the street to the sidewalk, but I sort of was in the street, and like, just pushing, pushing, pushing. And, and one of the questions that, that sometimes we want to know is like, what is the boundary in this realm, and how can I justify... Um, my relationship? How can I justify my behavior? How little do I have to do until it's a biblical, valid thing in Jesus's eyes? How much do I have to try before I can just throw in the towel because I've got this other thing going that might be more attractive anyway? What steps do I have to take? 
And we get so caught up, I'm not saying all of us, but it's easy to do, we get so caught up in the laws and the boundaries that we fail to see what the laws and boundaries are there to protect in the first place. The laws are a necessary thing, Jesus says, because of our hardness of heart. And God created men and women uh, from the very beginning for lifelong committed relationships, whether that is in a marriage or as friendships. Not everyone is created to get married, and the Bible is very clear that we can have amazing, fulfilling life without being married. But within the marriage relationship, which is what the Scripture is talking about, Matthew 19 says, or Jesus says in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let nobody separate, let nobody divide or tamper with. You hear that at a lot of weddings, especially in older school liturgies, right? What God has joined together, let no one separate. I don't ever use that voice, but it's kind of cooler. (laughs) He created the idea of marriage to reflect his love back into the world. The ethic is a call to love and commitment uh, toward one another. That's the idea. That's the ideal. The point isn't what constitutes a valid divorce, but how do we best love one another through thick and thin until death do us part? The expectation, the high bar that Jesus has set, is that we would work for reconciliation. Show me a marriage that never has problems, by the way. There's always reconciliation that has to take place. So the high bar is that we would always work towards reconciliation as much as it depends on us. In fact, studies have shown that Um, excluding instances of like abuse, addiction, and things like that, that couples who stick out the rough patches end up staying together and have much stronger relationships than those who throw in the towel really soon. It's just, it's just sociology. It's not even a Christian thing. It's just like, it's just what, what is. Jesus wants us to have lives of love for God and for neighbor, and he wants us to have lasting loving, committed relationships. And to get his point across, he speaks strongly. Whoever divorces his wife for just any reason makes her commit adultery even if she has a certificate of divorce because in God's eyes, their divorce is not valid. He who marries a woman who's been divorced commits adultery because in that any cause divorce It's not valid in God's eyes. It's just not part of his plan. Now, we need to sit with the severity of Jesus' words for a minute. It is important for us to feel their gravity and to experience the countercultural nature of Christian marriage, not only in the first century, which was pretty countercultural, but in the 21st century in the Western world. this This is crazy talk. This is very different than what we see in the world around us, right? This is a very different standard. Our world is a you-do-you world. This, This is crazy high standard. We need to sit with that. We need to know that God is is against human hard-heartedness and the kind of selfishness that leads to destruction of marriages. And I think it's important that we sit with 
the experience, the uncomfortable nature of Jesus' teaching and recognize that we are, oh my gosh, poor in spirit and desperately needy. The disciples at one point in the gospel said, they heard this teaching and they're like, who should be married? Like, this is crazy hard. Even they in the first century said that. It, it, does us, it does me no good as a preacher and does us no good to just explain away what Jesus is saying. Like, we've got to sit with it a minute. It's intentionally supposed to be hard. And a word about grace. We have to recognize that in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that this two-verse part of the sermon is not different than the other parts of the sermon. And in every other part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses strong language to get his point across. When was the last time you took someone to court for being angry? Whoever is angry with his brother or sister shall be guilty before the court. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. When was the last time you plucked your eye out or chopped your hand off because you were overwhelmed with lust? I would be a stumpy pastor if I did that. (laughs) I've seen this passage in particular used to abuse people. I've seen women endure years of abuse and neglect because their pastors told them is not biblical for you to leave. And I don't know if this is worse or not. It just feels worse because I'm a dad. But I've seen kids endure horrible abuse because one of the parents was unwilling to leave because of a biblical misinterpretation. That they thought, I just can't. That somehow suffering abuse is more biblical than getting out. And I've watched couples slog through the mud of compassionless coexistence because they were unwilling to put in the work, (laughs) frankly, to reconcile their relationship. And so they're doing the godly thing by being the most unhappy, curmudgeon-y people I've ever met. But we're doing it for Jesus. And what about the other extreme? What about those who have experienced a biblically invalid divorce, right? An any cause divorce at some point in their lives and are now remarried? Are we supposed to say to them, uh, actually, you're supposed to get divorced now? <laughs> Is that how we carry out this teaching? More pain on top of the pain? Remember that what we are getting in Jesus' teaching is Jesus the preacher. Jesus the preacher is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's giving us the goal, the vision for flourishing. He's giving us what is ideal. In an ideal world, this is the standard. We work things out. We stay with each other. We treat each other as image bearers of the living God, and we have thriving marriages that reflect God's goodness into the kingdom. In what other area of your life are you perfect at that? Jesus is the preacher, preaching ideals in the Sermon on the Mount. But in the narrative sections of 
the Gospels. That's the story sections of the Gospels. We often see Jesus, the pastor, the good shepherd. In these stories, Jesus is always with people who fail to live up to the ideals. And in those moments, we learn a lot about not only the good news of what we can be, the the good news that the preacher Jesus talks about, but the good news of where he meets us in the trenches. That's where the pastor Jesus meets us. Early we heard Abby read the story from John chapter 4 in which Jesus encounters a woman at a well who had been married to five different people, was currently living out of wedlock with some other dude who doesn't have a name in the story. Married five times, living with the sixth. And Jesus calls her out on it, but he still call, and he calls her to a high bar of flourishing, but he pastors her. And in case it's not clear enough, he offers this woman entrance into the kingdom of God. And she goes in to evangelize her Samaritan village, come and meet a man who told me everything about me. People come to the Lord because of his grace to a woman who had broken this commandment five times. God's vision of what flourishing looks like is amazing. It is a very high standard, but his grace is also ridiculously deep. We are recipients of great forgiveness. I have to say this clearly, Any sin can be forgiven. Otherwise, what are we preaching here? This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus. Paul killed Christians. (laughs) And he's the one of the greatest apostles of all time. Any sin can be forgiven if the one seeking forgiveness is actually repentant. And sorry, and I think that that's, you guys, that's the the importance of not washing down commandments like this. That's the importance of sitting with the gravity of what Jesus is saying. Because if I just jump to the good news, hey, any sin can be forgiven. Well, can it, if we're not really sorry? Can it, if we don't actually feel our sin? Like, we have to actually believe that there are sinful behaviors in order to be forgiven. I think that's the importance of the one-two of Jesus the preacher and Jesus the pastor. We can't dumb down either side. Confession is agreeing with God that we actually are sinful. A bad divorce can be forgiven if we actually repent and agree that it's a bad divorce. And what I don't see condoned here is a casual attitude about divorce between followers of Jesus. Can I just say, I know this is running long, I just, there's so much to say, and I don't want you to leave with half-truths. These standards that Jesus is talking about are for followers of Jesus. I've met lots of people who have lots of relational history before they were following Jesus. And then they come, and they have a conversion experience, and I'm not sure that we can hold everyone to the standard of Jesus before they ever meet him or begin to follow him, right? That's crazy. And so I I think that um, I don't see condoned here a casual attitude about divorce for followers of Jesus. A, A couple committed to one another with God's help can endure Great storms of trial and even betrayal when there's reconciliation and genuine humility and the work of restoration. 
And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. God often referred to Israel and his followers as an adulterous bride, and yet he came and died for her and redeemed her. That is humility and self-sacrifice. And if you're like me, these teachings on anger and lust and fidelity in our relationship stir up all kinds of emotions and confrontation with our failure and sinfulness. And that's where I'm thankful and share my thankfulness with you uh, for a God who died for us while we were still rebelling. And I'm thankful we have a God who says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm thankful that we can come to him right now and not only be forgiven, but have eternal life. As we prepare to meet him at the table, let's let this moment of silence be our confession.